So Matthew, the, the detailed accountant, began his gospel with a genealogy, a sort of first century resume. John, the fisherman turned disciple, was a, a deep thinker. He began his gospel with the eternally existing cosmos creating Christ. And then Luke, the physician, gave the most famous historical accounting of the events of the birth of Christ. He's the most quoted version around this time of the year, most notably by Linus from the Charlie Brown Christmas special. But today we look at Mark, called John Mark by his friends and family. He wasn't an eyewitness of the life of Christ. He was a second generation believer. We see him first in Acts chapter 12, and he traveled for years with Paul and Barnabas. And if you remember when we were studying the epistles, um, how Paul had a falling out with John Mark and Barnabas over taking John Mark with him. They later reconciled, but John Mark spent a lot of time with Peter, and he probably wrote his gospel from, from data he collected about Jesus from his time with Peter. So if you remember, a gospel is a unique genre of literature. It's history and biography, but its aim is to transform hearts, not just to inform minds. In this Advent season, we're looking at the four gospels, specifically their introductions, and how each of them speaks to the history and mystery of the incarnation. So history, what we see in the Gospels is actual factual truth. And in mystery, <clears throat> the incarnation, God becoming man while remaining fully God is something we can't get our minds all the way around. But today we're in John Mark's Gospel and I have to admit I love how he writes. He writes in a hurry. And to give perspective on that, I sometimes watch movies and fast forward, usually not when Christie's around. And to my kids' dismay in the past, when I'm done with a song, I go to the next one, even if the singer isn't done singing the song. And so I like Mark's style of writing. Matthew has 28 chapters, Luke 24, John 21, and Mark gets it done in 16. And so let's read. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in a desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So the beginning of the good news, which is what gospel means about Jesus, the Messiah, which is what Christ means, the Son of God. Then he quotes from the ancient prophet Isaiah. And this is communicating to his readers that this is not some brand new story about a brand new guy. This is the continuation of the oldest of all stories. And Isaiah spoke of the future coming of a messenger who would introduce the Messiah. Then Mark introduces John the Baptist as that messenger. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so John's method of preparing the path for the Messiah was to preach the truth of God and specifically the need for people to turn from their sins in order to be ready to respond to the Savior because you have to recognize you need to be saved in order to recognize the Savior when you see him. And so John lived a rough and tumble kind of life. He was like the Old Testament prophets in that. He was also like them in his purpose. He was to get people ready for the Messiah. And the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, spoke of the Messiah who would come in their then distant future. John was privileged to actually introduce Jesus to the world. So John was an impressive guy. He wasn't afraid of people. 
He didn't go out of his way to impress or please people, but he said, next to the Messiah, I'm nothing. And later, when his followers were leaving him and following Jesus, one of his remaining followers ran up and said, hey, the guy you baptized, everyone's following him now. And John's reply was, great, that's as it should be. Now my joy is complete. He must become greater, I must become less. And John knew his role was to point people to the Savior. He could not save anyone himself. So we're going to stop there for just a minute. What if we were to take John's approach to our lives? And I mean literally, he must increase, I must decrease. My joy is complete when others are pointed to Jesus and my life decreases. You say, sounds good, Terry, I'm all in. Now wait a minute, let's think about this. It won't be long before John is thrown in prison and murdered, his head literally put on a platter at the request of a very sick young lady and her mom. What if our becoming less in order that Christ will become more means we actually become less? I mean, what if it means less wealth, less stuff, less popularity, less applause and encouragement from others? What if it means more opposition? What if Christ becoming more and us less means that he's going to let someone else be put in front of us? Maybe they get credit, not us. So think about it carefully because often we're surprised and even dismayed when we follow Christ, we're faithful, we're putting him first, and things don't go like we want them to go, or others fail to recognize our service. He must increase, I must decrease, but sometimes we doubt his goodness, his power, his existence when sickness, death, or loss comes into our lives. We don't like it when our service goes unnoticed. So we're going to come back to this in a minute. Let's go back to Mark 1. John's baptism was a Jewish ceremonial rite of repentance. It wasn't Christian baptism. In Acts 19, Paul rebaptizes some of John the Baptist's disciples because they were ignorant of the coming of the Spirit and had not been baptized in the name of Jesus. So again, John knows his role. He's happy in it. He says, I'm paving the way for the one who's truly great. So here's what Mark's telling us at the very get-go. He said, Isaiah pointed to John. Here comes John. John points to the Messiah. Here comes the Messiah. Who is he? Turn to the next page. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. There he is. The long-awaited one is Jesus. But wait a minute. He's a guy from around here. He's a normal guy, a guy who works with his hands for a living. How is he the Messiah? Exactly. How is he? It's amazing. It's history and mystery. He's from around here, and he's definitely not from around here at the same time. So Jesus is a long-awaited, long-foretold Messiah. In the rest of the gospel, Mark's going to give the facts of Jesus to prove that he is this king. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. So Matthew and Luke start with baby Jesus. John starts with the cosmos creating Jesus. Mark jumps to full-grown Jesus being baptized in a river. At his baptism, there is this amazing Trinitarian scene, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's epic stuff. So how do you think it happened? I mean, you read how it happened. That's a pretty short paragraph. But what would it look like if you were there? You could say, well, who can know, so who can care? Well, we should care. It was real history with eternal importance. So we have to train our minds to think about this as a real thing, not so we can do vain speculation or try to scrutinize the inscrutable, but so we can train ourselves to think of the gospel as real. I get questions from super church, and the kids are thinking about the Bible as real. 
Real history. Real history with mystery. Recently I got this one. It was from Eva, by the way, my granddaughter. And she said, why did Jesus choose 12 disciples instead of more or less? It's a good question. It's a question you would wonder if you're thinking about this as a real event. You wouldn't ask, why were there seven dwarfs? You know, why not six, why not eight? It's just because it's in the story. But since this is history and not mythology, the little girl asked, why 12? So if you were there at the Lord's baptism, what would you see? You would see a 30-something first century Jewish man dripping wet, standing in water and mud. You'd feel sun, maybe a breeze, you'd hear a splash. It was a real event in human history. But then what does it look like for the heavens to be torn open, to be rent? I don't know, I've not seen that, but if you were there, something happened. The Bible doesn't say the heavens as in the place of God's dwelling is up there in the sky in the physical sense. So what does it look like? Supposedly, when Russia's Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space in 1961, he quipped, I don't see God up here. Turns out historically that Yuri was a believer. He probably didn't make that remark. It was probably quoted to him by the Russian president who was an atheist. But it was widely quoted, got a lot of yuck yucks from the secular type folks at the time. Stupid Christians, God's not in space. We never said he is. He made the cosmos. Of course, Yuri's not going to find him up there. That's dumb. C.S. Lewis responded to it back then in 61 in a published article. He said, if there is a God who created us, we're not going to find him in space. God doesn't relate to human beings like somebody on the second floor relates to a guy on the first floor. He said it would be like the way Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Shakespeare created Hamlet's world and Hamlet himself. Hamlet could only know about Shakespeare if the author reveals information about himself in the play. So, of course, you can't go up in space and see the cosmos creator. But in the incarnation, we have more than just information from God. We have God the incarnate come into the world to save us. And so here at his baptism, somehow, if you were there, you would have seen God rip space-time for a moment. I wonder what that would look like. And so as we think about this, we should wonder as in, hmm, I wonder. You ask questions. When you wonder about something, you ask questions of it. And then we should wonder at it, meaning be amazed at because it's, so it's history and mystery. We wonder and we wonder. And the Holy Spirit somehow either as or looking like a dove descended on Jesus. And then some of them or all of them, we don't know, heard a voice of God. I assume with their eardrums, but I don't know. God doesn't have physical vocal cords. He did make the air, so maybe he just made sound waves in the air. Maybe he went straight to their brains. I mean, your eardrums vibrate, but your brain hears. Who knows? You say, Terry... Why are you doing this to us? Because I want you to see this as a historical event. And when you, when you hear a news story that you believe to be true, you ask questions about it. Wow, what would that be like to be there? And if someone was there, you go, what was it like being there? It's a history event full of mystery. If you're standing there, though, and seeing it in real time in history... You still wouldn't know what was happening. You would, you would see what was happening. You wouldn't know why this is happening. You would see history, and it would be all mystery unless God told you what was going on. So we have to have God telling us the meaning of what's happening. And that's what Jesus is going to do in, in Mark's gospel. So Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He had no sins to repent of. In fact, in Matthew's account, John protested against baptizing Jesus and and Jesus said, he said, Jesus, you need to be baptizing me. And Jesus said, no, it's the right thing to do. So John complied. Next thing we have, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. 
And John added he was with the wild animals. Now, we think about this with our modern sensibilities, and we think, oh, he went on a nature hike. He saw some wildlife. No, he's telling us this was harsh. It was dangerous. He was physically, spiritually, mentally, socially deprived. He wasn't feeding the deer. He was avoiding snakes and lions and bears that roamed the Palestinian wilderness in the first century. He wasn't feeding the deer, and he wasn't even feeding on the deer. He was fasting the entire time. So 40 days is close to the upper limits of human ability to survive without food. So while he's at his physical worst, deprived of social fellowship, deprived physically, Satan comes with temptation. And so the idea in this little paragraph is this was difficult in every way imaginable. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, in many ways beyond what we are, yet he did not sin. And the 40 days is no doubt contrasting the Lord's success in the wilderness with Israel's failure there during their 40 years. And so the 40 would have had a powerful symbolic meaning for those first century readers. It's continuity with God's ageless plan. Now on a side note about numbers, when, when God uses numbers and symbols in Scripture to indicate continuity across the, the whole Bible, they're serving as larger purposes. Don't get weird looking for signs and weird numbers in your own life. What does that red light mean? That, the timing is so strange. This happened five times a day. Something bad's going to happen. I don't feel good about this. Is this a sign? Yeah, it's a sign to stop. <laughs> stop your car and stop getting weird. So the signs and symbol in Scripture help us see God's sovereign oversight of history, his hand in Scripture. But we're not to go around, well, I've got to find my sign to follow God. No, you don't. I had a conversation with a guy this week, and he needs to stand down on the whole sign business. What he needs to do is read God's word and do what it says, pray for wisdom, get wise counsel, and then be faithful. That's what following Jesus looks like. So next we find John's reward for being faithful as a forerunner of Jesus. He was put in prison. I'm, I'm being facetious. This was not his reward, but it also wasn't his punishment. It was the outcome of faithfulness. That's all it was. It's part of God's plan for his life. So again, if you're dismayed when faithfulness doesn't make your problems go away, you have to train yourself to think more biblically. The reward for faithfulness is to be found faithful. We don't like that. The reward for faithfulness ought to be all my dreams come true. No, the reward for faithfulness is well done, good and faithful son or daughter. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So here we find the summary of Jesus' core message. The kingdom of God is near at hand, meaning he's saying, when you look at me, you're seeing the kingdom. So let's do a brief review of kingdom in Scripture. We did this the last couple of years. But first, the kingdom of God in the Scripture is the rule of the one true king. A kingdom is where what the king wants done gets done. And so thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus prayed. And a good king has a good kingdom and the subjects of that kingdom thrive there. And so what we see next in Mark's gospel is Jesus starts inviting people to live in the kingdom of God by inviting them to follow him. So to thrive in the kingdom, to live in the kingdom, follow Jesus. And the stories that follow that show Jesus demonstrating his royal authority to make that proclamation because he backs it up with power. He casts out demons, he heals the sick, he, he calms storms. These are kingly stories of dominion in the kingdom. He has power over spiritual beings and human ailments in the material world. Second, we see in the gospel that the kingdom is already but not yet. 
In one sense, the kingdoms come in the person of Jesus, who was fulfilling God's will perfectly. In another sense, it was gradually coming heart by heart as human beings surrendered and followed Jesus. In the third sense, the kingdom would come in fullness on the last day at the end of the present age. And so the kingdom has three levels in the Gospels, so to speak. So the coming of Christ, people coming to Christ, and the second coming of Christ. And that's what Advent is. Advent historically is celebrating the first Advent, life between the Advents, and the second Advent. And then there are three reactions to Jesus and his claims of authority as the true king. Some people followed him and bowed to his authority. Some were just confused, and some outright rejected him. Let's look at the first of those who followed him because they represent a pattern for everyone who's ever going to follow Christ. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. So Simon and Andrew demonstrate what's true for everyone who follows Jesus. At minimum, to have a relationship with Christ, there's a leaving and a following. It corresponds to Jesus' call to repent and believe. To repent means to turn away from, and then to believe means to follow. So everyone who follows Jesus will respond in the same way to his call. They're going to leave and follow. Not everyone's going to leave their jobs. Not everyone's going to leave their family, though some still do. In a sense, it happened to someone in our church recently. But everyone's going to leave a life of calling their own shots, of being their own king in their own kingdom, and they're going to move into his loving rule. Living in a king's kingdom under a king's rule means that there are rules, but the rules are not the point. The point is thriving in the king's kingdom. So we want to do what he wants because what he wants is good. To follow the king and thrive in his kingdom means we leave our old way of life, our own way of life, and we follow him into his way of life. So we have Mark's precise and concise introduction of Jesus and Messiah. It's real history It's mind-blowing mystery. So let's move into personal application. So why didn't Jesus heal everyone? Mark says specifically he drove out many demons and healed many diseases. Why not all? Why not set up a command post, get this thing logistically squared away, and just start rolling them all through and healing them all? He even told one guy he healed, don't tell anyone what happened. Just go to the priests, let them check you off as being um, ritually clean, but don't tell anyone. Why? Well, of course, the guy ignored Jesus and told everyone, but he didn't want people coming to him because he was Santa Claus or a genie. He wanted them to come because of what they needed the most, not necessarily what they wanted the most. And what they needed the most was forgiveness of sins. He told a guy that was paralyzed, your sins are forgiven. And it incensed the local religious leaders, and they were mumbling, who could forgive sins but God alone? And so Jesus said, look, it's easy to say something, Abracadabra, your sins are forgiven. Who would know? He said, but so you'll know I have the authority to forgive sins. Watch this. Get up and walk. Who can do that except God? The man got up and was healed. He didn't heal everyone, and everyone he did heal, he did so as a sign pointing to larger purposes. His purpose was that humans would leave the domain of darkness and enter the kingdom of God. Healing was then and always is now a sign, and a sign doesn't point to itself, it points to something greater than itself. I've said it before, if you see the sign, Grand Canyon ahead, you don't stop there, you go to the Grand Canyon. And Jesus did amazing things to confirm his authority to tell people the truth about God, life, eternity. And so there are a lot of messages out there, a lot of people making truth claims, 
Jesus made absolute truth claims and then backed them up with real authority, with kingly power. And so Mark began like this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, the time has come, the kingdom is near, repent and believe the good news. And what is the good news? We can be forgiven of our sins. We can have a relationship with God. We can live now and forever in the good kingdom of God. And then we ask, okay, yeah, that's great, but what about what I want? Well, what do you want? I want healing of my disease. I want relationship with my family restored. Okay, who doesn't? That's good. I don't want my loved one to die. Well, me either. And God may choose to heal. He may work in your loved one and in your heart to restore relationship. He might give your loved one a few more years. But if he does, that's not the gospel. It would be good news. If my friend who's sick in the hospital were healed this week, it would be good news. But it's not the good news. So when God heals one child and not the other, you read that in the paper. Oh, God just showed me a miracle and healed my daughter. You rejoice in that. But did he not love the daughter of the, of the mom, the one who died? Did he, did he love that mother more? So let's talk history and mystery. History, Christ has come. He's died for your sins. He's risen from the dead. And you can, if you will, leave and follow, repent and believe. There's no one. God alone could stop, and he won't. There's no one who can keep you from coming to him. You can experience what Christ the King came to bring. Mystery. Why doesn't God heal me? Why do I suffer like this? Why is that person's life like that and mine like it is? I don't know. I don't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. That would be in that realm. The things revealed belong to us. That would be the gospel. So here's what we know. To thrive in the kingdom of God, we must decrease, he must increase. We are miserable when we make life about us. Everybody's tried it. Everybody knows that from experience that they've paid attention. When you make life about you, you are unhappy and getting more unhappy. We move into the realm of joy when we make life about him. And we've, probably most of us have at least dabbled in that. Making life about him means that faithfulness is our goal. The reward for faithfulness is being found faithful. There's an old song that says, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And that's an old song, but it tells an older truth. You trust in the mystery. You obey in the history. By all means, ask God for what you want. Don't stop praying. And if God gives you some little G good news, then, then be thankful. You should. And that little G good news is pointing to the God and to the Lord Jesus who is the one who's brought the big G good news. So trust in the mystery, obey in the history. And that's how you thrive in his good kingdom. Let's pray together. I had a, a dear friend come to me in between services in tears because she, this, this is very pertinent to her life, probably pertinent to many people's lives. And um, very difficult things in her life, but she's trusting God. And so as we move into a time of more prayer and more worship, more reflection, please be honest with God about what you're dealing with and thinking about and praying for. So let's, let's, let's lean into God right now.